Hello everyone and welcome back to Indian Genes. As part of our ongoing season 2, 2021 a new dawn, things are getting really interesting here as we look into various aspects of space exploration and try to address the questions that inevitably come up. So today we discuss a topic that most of you have been asking us to take on with Perseverance now on Mars trying to answer the question of is there or was there life on Mars? Our guest today takes this one step further, asking a very interesting question, which is, have we been visited by extraterrestrial life? And speaking to us today is a professor of science at the Harvard University and was subsequently a long-term member of the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton. He has been the longest serving chair of Harvard's Department of Astronomy and a founding director of Harvard's Black Hole Initiative. He was also elected fellow to the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Physical Society. He is a former member of the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology at the White House and also chairs the Advisory Committee for the Breakthrough Starshot Initiative. In 2012, Time magazine selected him as one of the 25 most influential people in space. His new book, Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth, is an absolute must-read. In this book, he takes readers inside the thrilling journey of the first interstellar visitor to be spotted in our solar system. He outlines his controversial theory and its profound implications for science, religion, and for the future of our species on our planet. This is a mind-bending journey to the furthest reaches of science, space-time, and the human imagination. Indian Genes is proud to bring you a very exciting conversation with an extremely interesting person none other than Professor Avi Loeb. Hello Avi, it's an absolute honor to have you speak to us here in India exclusively through Indian Genes. We do know that your time is limited. You have an interview with CNN coming up and we will have to release you on time. But before we get into that, first of all, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And thank you for talking to us on Indian Jeans. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And before we start, and I think probably the best place to start, if that is okay with you, is in the eye of the storm. And there seems to be a storm and there seems to be an eye here, right? Yes. I mean, uh, if you refer to the response of the media and the public, as well as the scientific community, there is a, a lot of attention to my book. Uh, and uh, the way I view it is as a platform for me to convey uh, my views about things that are not necessarily healthy right now in the academic culture, but also to advocate for uh, being open-minded about the possibility that we might not be alone, that in fact, uh, we might not even be the smartest kid on the block. True. That has been, uh, funnily, there are a lot of people outside uh, science. And when I say outside science, I count myself there because I am a 
communicator, but most of the people I interact with strongly believe in a lot of this, strongly hold views that it is possible, and everyone seems to be very enthusiastic about it. But yes, I was uh, quite surprised to the reaction, honestly, from the community. Yes, uh, currently we know, uh, thanks to the Kepler satellite, that a substantial fraction of all the sun-like stars, about half of them, have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. And that means that the physical conditions on the surface of those planets um, would be quite similar to what we find on Earth. And if you repeat the similar circumstances, you're likely to get similar outcomes. Therefore, in my view, given what we know now, uh, it should be mainstream, it should be common sense to assume that there are many life forms similar to us around other stars. That should be the starting point. And from that, we should decide to search for either primitive forms of life or intelligent forms of life. And it's not clear which one is easier to detect because let me give you an example. The astronomy community is planning to invest billions of dollars in the future decades to search for oxygen in the atmospheres of planets around other stars. The idea is that oxygen may be indicative of life. Uh, the problem with that notion is that for two billion years, the Earth did not have much oxygen in its atmosphere, even though it had microbial life. So not finding oxygen uh, is not necessarily an indication that there is no life. For half of the lifetime of Earth, there wasn't much oxygen in the atmosphere. But even if you find oxygen, it may not indicate life because you can make oxygen by natural chemical processes. So what would be an indication of life without a doubt, after investing those billions of dollars, it would be if we use the same telescopes, the same observatories, the same instruments to search for industrial pollution. Because these molecules are not produced by nature, and if we find them in the atmospheres of other planets, they would imply that not only there is life there, but there is industrial life, technological life. And so sometimes, under some circumstances, it may be even easier to detect intelligent life than microbial life and more conclusive. So my point is, we should be open-minded, we should take advantage of all the instruments and the telescopes that we are developing and search for other kids on the block. There is nothing more exciting than that. And the public is extremely interested in this question the public funds science. So how can it be a situation where the scientific community shies away from any discussion on technological signatures and puts a taboo and ridicules whoever raises a possibility that something anomalous that was found may be a technological signature? Absolutely. And you mentioned biosignatures or microbial life. Even having found those, that still, like you have just said, doesn't indicatively give you any proof that life would have developed or has developed and moved on. But a direct industrial signature, if you can call that, or uh, artifact would be much more exciting. That's right. And uh, speaking about searching for technological signatures, in the past, we focused on radio signals. And that started about 70 years ago when uh, we developed uh, 
radio for communication, um, that requires there to be someone on the other side that is alive. It's just like speaking on the phone. Uh, in order to have a conversation, you need the other side to be alive. But if you imagine another form of communication, uh, letters, if you get a letter in the mail, the sender may not be alive, doesn't need to be alive. Uh, and so uh, looking for messages in a bottle, or as I call them, uh, technological relics that are floating in space and were produced by civilizations that might be dead by now, is another approach. Uh, and that seems to me more promising because it uh, sums over a long history of billions of years when civilizations could have been around and they might not be around anymore. So it's just like doing archaeology where you find relics of past cultures that existed on Earth. For example, the Mayan culture does not exist anymore, but we know that they existed because we find relics in archaeological sites. So we can do archaeology in space and search for technological relics either floating in space, like Oumuamua perhaps was, and that's what I descri describe in my book, or on planets. You can look for industrial pollution, you can look for um, uh, structures and photovoltaic cells, or maybe even artificial lights that uh, were turned on but not turned off after the civilization was gone from there. Right, and coming to Amua Umua, uh, which I assume is a Hawaiian name for a scout, uh, very aptly. Would you want to just explain to a lot of our listeners what got your attention initially and how did this whole thing play out? Yeah, so this object was the first interstellar object that was spotted close to Earth. And by interstellar, we mean objects that came into the solar system from outside. And uh, it was discovered in uh, October 2017 by the PANSTARS telescope in Hawaii. Uh, and that's why it was given a name that means something in the Hawaiian language, Oumuamua. And at first, of course, astronomers assumed it's just a rock, similar to all the rocks that we have seen before within the solar system, like comets or asteroids. A comet is a rock that is covered with ice. And when it gets close to the sun, the sunlight warms it up and evaporates the ice into a cometary tail. So we see these beautiful trails of gas and dust behind comets. The only problem was Oumuamua didn't show any cometary tail. So, I mean, we would have naturally expected it to be a comet because these are the most abundant objects uh, in the solar system. They extend all the way out to the edge of the solar system in the Oort cloud, and they can easily be ripped apart from the solar system by passing stars. And so if you imagine other stars having Oort clouds, you can assume that most of the interstellar objects will be comets. But Oumuamua was not. It didn't have any cometary tail. And in fact, the Spitzer Space Telescope looked very deeply around it and put very tight limits on carbon-based molecules or dust. So it's, it was definitely not a comet. Uh, and then uh, people said, okay, well, maybe it's just a rock. Uh, this object, as it was spinning around or, or tumbling over eight hours, showed big variations in it in the amount of uh, reflected sunlight. Uh, 
variations by a factor of 10. And uh, that means that the area that the object occupied on the sky was changing by a factor of 10 or more. And um, uh, it means that the object was at least 10 times longer than it was wide projected on the sky. And the best model to fit the, vari the variations in the light curve was that of a disk or a pancake, something flat, not cigar-shaped the way uh, you see in one of the famous cartoons. Projected on the sky, it looked like an elongated shape, but it was actually a pancake shape, flat. And then the most strange thing about it is that it exhibited an extra push away from the sun. And uh, this extra force that was acting on it in addition to gravity um, was declining inversely with distance squared in a very smooth way. So the only thing I could think of that would do it was uh, reflected sunlight. When sun bounces off a surface, it gives it an extra push, sort of like wind bouncing off a sail. In order for the effect to be significant, you need a large area per weight. Uh, and that me meant that this object needs to be very thin, just like a sail on a boat. And um, we call it a light sail. Uh, and this is a technology that we are currently developing for space exploration. Uh, it offers the advantage that the spacecraft does not need to carry the fuel with it. Uh, and so I suggested in a paper, scientific paper, that with uh, my postdoc, Shmuel Biali, that perhaps Oumuamua was a very thin object, uh, a light sail. And uh, as it turns out, in uh, September uh, 2020, just a few months ago, there was another object that exhibited an extra push from reflected sunlight and didn't show any cometary tail. And it turns out that this was a rocket booster from a 1966 mission to the moon, Lunar Lander Surveyor 2. And the, it was very thin and hollow, and that's why it exhibited this extra push. So that shows we can tell the difference between a rock and something thin. Uh, and uh, in the case of this rocket booster, we know that we produced it. We know that it's artificial. In the case of Oumuamua, we don't know who made it. Right. And I think, interestingly, one of the pushbacks to your observation was uh, Bariso. I think that was another object. And just because of the fact that it turned out not to be any uh, alien form of uh, or any artificial form of uh, uh, an object, so was that used against your uh, description or argument? Well, so that was the second object discovered, uh, Boris, uh, discovered by a, a Russian amateur astronomer, Gennady Borisov, and it's called Borisov. Uh, it looked just like a comet, a regular comet, the way we expected the first one to be. Uh, and so people, as I mentioned in my book, people approached me and said, uh, doesn't that convince you that Oumuamua was also natural? And uh, I replied that uh, when I met my wife on the first date, I thought that she's special and unique. And the fact that I met a lot of people after that did not change my opinion about her. So uh, if you find a lot of uh, rocks and seashells on the beach and they all look natural, 
but then you stumble across a plastic bottle and it looks as if it came from a civilization, then the fact that you saw rocks many of the times does not mean that the, the plastic bottle is, is natural. Mm. And you said it was discovered in 2017. Did we discover it on time or was there anything we could have done if we would have discovered it earlier or yes. was it just passing by and nothing we could do? Well, of course, um, it would have been much better if we discovered it a few months earlier because um, in October 2017, it was already uh, moving away from us. So it's sort of like having a guest for dinner and realizing that the guest is interesting when the guest leaves through the front door into the dark street. And uh, we couldn't really chase it because it was moving too fast for our rockets. By now, it's a million times fainter than it was close to the sun. So we can't really continue to observe it. And uh, if we were to discover it, for example, in July instead of October, we would see it coming towards us. And at that point, we could have even launched a spacecraft with a camera that would wait for it along its journey, and we could have taken a close-up photo. Uh, as, as they say, uh, a picture is worth a thousand words. And if we had a, a photograph of this object and it didn't look anything like a rock, that would have convinced everyone that it's artificial. And that's what we should do for the next one that we find that looks as weird as Oumuamua. And I'm optimistic that in a few years we will find many more. Um, that's based on my experience when I go to the kitchen and I look at the cabinet and I see an ant uh, I get alarmed because I know that there must be a lot of other ants uh, hiding somewhere or around the kitchen. And so um, we are likely to find more. Uh, we just surveyed the sky with panstars for a few years and found this one. And uh, then when we find more, if one of them approaches us, we can get a much better view of it, hopefully with a camera that passes by and take a, takes a close-up photo. And uh, I should say that in July 2017, by, by coincidence, uh, I visited uh, Maui in Hawaii and uh, went to that uh, observatory uh, where Pan Stars is to give a seminar. I was on vacation with my family. Back well, then, nobody knew about Oumuamua. That is so interesting because uh, is what SETI doing at the moment do we expect something similar to happen? But because you said we initially started with radio waves. So for people listening to us, a lot of us think that probably SETI is something that is going to find some signal. But obviously what you're saying is we need to do more. Oh, definitely. And a completely different approach, uh, searching for objects, physical objects, which is similar to archaeology. So I call it space archaeology. And um, it's completely different from searching for radio signals, both in terms of the requirements on the, on the sender of those signatures. Um, in the case of a radio signal, the civilization needs to be alive. In the case of relics, it doesn't. And uh, the Drake equation is often used in the context of uh, radio signals, and, and it basically encapsulates our ignorance. There are several factors in it. Uh, depending on your assumptions, you get a, a, a different chance of detecting a radio uh, signal, but it doesn't apply to physical objects. For physical objects, think of it as space trash, as uh, <laughs> objects floating in space. For example, uh, 
Voyager 1, Voyager 2, New Horizon are objects we sent out that will leave the solar system. And although now they are still functional, think about what will happen to them in a million years or in a billion years. They will be just space junk. They will not operate anymore, floating through space, and someone could find them. And the only question as to whether we will find space junk is what is the abundance? What is the number of such objects per unit volume uh, that is moving randomly through space? And uh, if we search, we might find them every now and then. And that's a completely different calculation than the Drake equation. It's just a, a question of how many per unit volume uh, we can find in our neighborhood. It's similar to saying how many plastic bottles per unit area you have on the beach. You go around, you see a lot of seashells and, and, and rocks, but every now and then you find one of them. And these plastic bottles are not functional anymore, but they clearly indicate that we know that nature cannot produce plastic. Right. And I think you very, very interestingly and very well, I should say, in your book and the paper that you released uh, in 2021, January, where you speak about scientific results must be uh, reproducible. Uh, a lot of people listening to us here are university and college students and they get, want to get into research and fields of research. What would you say to them if they had to, because not many people either have the courage to get into this or are held back for whatever reason? Well, so that's the main reason that I speak out because uh, I don't have to worry about, I have a tenured appointment at Harvard University. I also have a leadership position. I, I was department chair uh, for nine years of the Harvard Astronomy Department. Uh, it was renewed for twice and I was the longest serving chair. I'm the chair of the board on physics and astronomy of the National Academies. I also chair the advisory board for the Breakthrough Starshot project. So I have a lot of leadership uh, positions. And um, in that capacity, I feel confident that I can speak out. But I know that the younger people are worried because this subject is not at the mainstream and they can be perhaps not have as, as many opportunities for jobs if they were to deviate from what the majority of the community is doing right now. So my goal is to bring it to, to the center of the mainstream because that's where it belongs this subject the public is interested the public fund science it should be there we have the ability to address this question and frankly we are doing things that are far more speculative right now for example most of the matter in the universe is not known it's called dark matter because we can't see it and uh, over the years there were suggestions for different types of particles that could constitute the dark matter and um, People uh, built experiments that search for specific types of dark matter, like uh, weakly interacting dark matter, WIMPs, or um, axions, or all kinds of others. And hundreds of millions of dollars were invested in those experiments. Nothing was found. We just have better limits. Many of the original suggestions are ruled out by now. Now, this is part of doing science at the frontier. Sometimes you go in directions that do not lead anywhere. But these directions, you know, are really in the dark. <laughs> it's the dark matter. We don't know what the dark matter is, and we are going in different directions. Now, why would that be considered part of the mainstream, whereas searching for technological signatures of other civilizations would not? I, I would argue that 
the search for dark matter is even more in the dark. We have no clue as to what the nature of the dark matter is. I mean, we have some general ideas, but um, we don't know what it is. It could be black holes that were made in the early universe, and then we will find nothing. Uh, it could be that gravity is modified, and then we will find nothing. But it's part of the mainstream because we feel it's an important question that we should address and we should try various options. Now, exactly the same approach should apply to the search for technological signatures. And in fact, it's even less speculative there because we know that we exist and we know that the conditions we have on Earth are replicated in many other places. So I would argue that the mainstream community in astronomy is currently exactly on the opposite side of where it should be. This should be part of the mainstream, and it, it is being put in the periphery. And through my book, through my um, uh, voice, I'm trying to change this situation and bring it to a healthy place. Um, I think part of the problem is uh, that people in general, not just scientists, prefer to think that we are unique and special. It flatters your ego to think that you're special and unique. And it started with the Greek philosopher Aristotle, who said that the Earth is at the center of the universe. And everyone agreed with it for a thousand years because it flatters your ego to think that you're at the center of the universe. You know, my daughters, when they were infant, they thought that they're at the center of the universe because their universe was just home. And they, they were at the center of, of the family. And they thought that they're at the center of the entire universe. So that's quite natural uh, for a naive perception, and it flatters your ego. But then my daughters went to the kindergarten and saw other kids, and they got a better perspective about their place. They, they realized that they don't have the best qualities. And um, so we realized that we are not at the center of the universe with Copernicus and Galileo. Uh, at first, when Galileo made this point, uh, philosophers did not want to look through his telescope. They just put him in house arrest. It was threatening their ego. and uh, But it didn't change reality. Reality is whatever it is, unrelated to whether you ignore it. And so the earth continued to move around the sun, even though the philosophers didn't want to believe it. Uh, and eventually, you know, they this is this just maintained their ignorance for a while, but eventually we found out that we are not at the center of the solar system. The earth is moving around the sun and the sun is moving around the center of the galaxy. And the galaxy, the Milky Way, is just one of a trillion galaxies in the observable volume of the universe. So really, there is nothing special about our location, nothing privileged. We are sort of on, in an average place. And um, people still prefer to believe, even though that we, are in, in, we, we learn that we are not at the physical center of the universe, People still want to maintain that we are at the center of the biological universe, that we are special and unique. And they ask for extraordinary evidence to demonstrate to them that we are not the only ones. And I, I ask you, isn't that similar to what Aristotle was arguing? Like, we are special and unique, we are privileged, and show me evidence that we are not. And we've learned through history that we, have, we are never in a privileged place. You know, the Earth-Sun system is not privileged. There are almost every, you know, half of the sun-like stars have such an Earth. And so even our backyard looks similar to all the other backyards. And why would we believe that we, we don't get the same outcome? Uh, so I would argue that a much 
more natural thing to assume is let's be modest. Let's let's assume that we are typical and then just search for those signatures. And, and that should be the natural point of view. Uh, the other thing is there is this uh, literature on science fiction uh, that, that is not rooted in science. And uh, there are reports about unidentified flying objects that are, you know, uh, doubtful. And so scientists say, we don't want to deal with that subject. And uh, my reply is that in the Middle Ages, in the Dark Ages, there were people saying, you should never dissect the human body uh, because it has magical powers. There is a soul. You should never enter into the human body. And imagine if scientists would say, okay, there is all this nonsense being said about the human body. We don't want to operate people. Uh, where would modern medicine be? Science should address every subject if it has the ability to do so with the scientific tools, because that improves our knowledge. We want to figure out what things are. So how can the scientific community say, you know, there is nonsense being said about uh, aliens, therefore we don't want to deal with this subject? Makes no sense to me. Absolutely. You mentioned about dark matter and Maybe one of the thoughts that come to my mind is if uh, mathematics is the universal language and then we attach that to some kind of theory because it works in mathematics. I could think of a multiverse. So that is similar. It could work in a mathematical theory on the board. But since you, mattered, uh, since you mentioned dark matter, it's the same case with the multiverse, right? We're never able to prove it. Yeah, no, in fact, so this is another aspect of my frustration that you find in theoretical physics right now a focus on, on subjects that have no experimental test. So the one thing that Galileo pioneered is uh, the scientific method where you test your ideas against evidence. Evidence is really key to science. You need experimental feedback because physics is a dialogue with nature. It's not a monologue. We're not telling nature what, what it should be. That's what the philosophers say, uh, thought, that they tell nature, you know, you should be centered around us. But we, we can't, you know, we, are, we should be modest. You know, nature is whatever it is, and we should figure it out. And we do it by allowing nature to tell us something uh, through experiments. So we get data, and then we analyze it, and we learn something new. You know, nobody would have expected quantum mechanics. It was completely non-intuitive. And Albert Einstein uh, resisted the idea that quantum mechanics has spooky action at a distance, and he was wrong. So here again, experiments taught us that our preconceptions are wrong. And sometimes nature's imagination is far greater than ours. So out of humility, we should allow nature to tell us the answer rather than... Uh, say that we know it in advance. Now, the problem in theoretical physics now is for decades, there was no new experimental feedback that guided the theories. And so they started going in directions like extra dimensions, super strings, the multiverse. These are ideas that have no contact, no connection to experimental verification. And yet they are celebrated by the mainstream and people give each other awards for mathematical gymnastics on these concepts. Now, this is, uh, I, th I think, a betrayal of the tradition of physics. Uh, and the way I understand it is in academia, many people want to just demonstrate that they are smart. 
That's their objective. Not to understand nature, it's to demonstrate that they are smart. And in, in order to demonstrate that you are smart, you know, you can define a subject. In fact, it's better not to show any skin, not to, to take any risk by comparing your ideas to experiments, because then you might be wrong. So if you want to maintain a very strong image that makes no mistakes, you just work on mathematics. That will never be wrong if you do it right. And uh, nature may have nothing to do with it. But as long as there are no experiments, you're on, on a safe ground and you can be in your comfort zone and demonstrate that you're smart. And that's pretty much what's going on right now in theoretical physics in the area of string theory. Uh, they work on subjects that have no connection to data, to experiments, and moreover will have no connection because some of these spaces that they work in, like anti-de-sitter space, is not the one that we live in, but that's where they enjoy doing the mathematical gymnastics. And they, they, they claim, I mean, I have no problem with people working on mathematics, but they claim that they carry the torch of physics forward. And that's, that's a wrong statement because they have no contact with experiments. And I ask you, how is it possible that mainstream physics is engaged in uh, discussions about concepts that cannot be tested experimentally, they represent a betrayal of the tradition of physics, and at the same time, a subject that is based on evidence and very much rooted in our experience of uh, searching for other civilizations on other planets, uh, just because we exist, and just because the conditions on so many billions of planets are similar to those on Earth, that kind of, an, uh, of a subject is considered speculative. How is that possible to have these two situations at the same time? And uh, I think that something is completely twisted in the academic culture right now, which is focused on, on the ego of individuals rather than understanding nature. You know, sometimes nature is simple. You don't need mathematical sophistication. You don't need to work in spaces that do not exist. You just need to figure out what nature is, and that's it, and it's simple. And it doesn't need to show that you are smart. You just need to find out what it is. And um, that's a completely different goal than demonstrating that you are smart. You know, in the Olympics, people decide 100 meters is the distance that will measure whether a sprinter is fast or not. Now, this 100 meters is just arbitrary, right? It has nothing, no significance whatsoever. It could have been 50 meters, could have been 150 meters, whatever. Doesn't matter. You check whether a person runs fast. And I see much of this intellectual gymnastics as a way to measure how smart people are in academia, but that should not be should not have been the goal. The goal should have been let's understand what the world around us is, and that's a different goal. What it reminds me of is events seem to be cyclical, and uh, human behavior tends to have a lot of patterns. So what we're talking about now is probably I would look at it as prior to 1995, people who were talking about exoplanets would have been looked at the same way, but today. Every day I open my phone, I get to know there's a new exoplanet discovered. That's right. Um, I, so I had the benefit of working on frontiers when they were young and, and pioneering some of them. And uh, I noticed the same resistance um, of the mainstream community. And then uh, after a while, you know, they accepted it. And once it became mainstream, then, of course, the younger people that entered those fields 
said, oh, I can't believe it was never like that, you know. And um, in, in the example of Exoplanet is, is actually a very good one because uh, in 1952, Otto Struve, uh, an astronomer, uh, wrote a paper saying, you know, we should look for, search for um, uh, Jupiter-like planets close to a star because if they're close enough, they would move the star back and forth. We could easily detect that or they will have a high probability of occulting the star coming in front of it so we can see the deficit in the brightness of the star from the passage of the Jupiter in front of it. And he was just suggesting that. And uh, for 40 years, for four decades, uh, astronomers didn't want to allocate telescope time to do that search because the argument was we know that Jupiter in the solar system is much farther out, uh, you know, than, than needed to detect such a, th a system. Uh, and therefore, you know, we understand also why Jupiter is so far out. And therefore, it shouldn't, there shouldn't be any such systems. It would be a waste of telescope time to even check. And then in 1995, the data on one such system came back and showed that there is a system. And uh, for that, the Nobel Prize was awarded a few years ago. And uh, you might say, oh, but no harm was done. You know, eventually science converged on the right answer. Well, you know, this baby took four decades to be born. And science would have made much more progress if we were to discover it four decades earlier. Um, it's just the efficiency of science making discoveries was reduced by the resistance of the community to allocate a little bit of telescope time just to search for such system. What's the big deal? You know, we, we use telescopes for many other things that don't give any exciting result. Why couldn't we give, you know, 10%, 15%, 20% of the telescope time to risky propositions of this type? And it would have made science much more efficient, healthy. But the other thing I say, this is a baby that was born four decades later. But think about all the babies that were never born. For every baby that was barely born after four decades, there must be many more that were never born. And we lost that. All these ideas that could have brought to life new frontiers in, in science, how many of these were lost because the mainstream community was stubborn, insisting on paradigm and not willing to entertain ideas that deviate from uh, the mainstream. And at the same time, you see the mainstream in particle physics going crazy in directions that were not testable, that will not be testable in the next millennium. I don't know when they will be testable. And there are even philosophers supporting them and saying, oh, you know, we need to rethink physics. Maybe experiments are not really needed. Well, the truth is, you know, Aristotle thought that way as well. But then Copernicus and Galileo taught us that, you know, the idea that we had was wrong based on data. And so we now know that we really need feedback from reality. It's sort of like, you know, some people saying, oh, you know, we can uh, stay high on drugs and enjoy something that we imagine, which is beautiful, you know. And, and that's just like thinking, oh, you know, I, I might be more wealthy than Elon Musk. I have a lot of money in the bank. And, and that's a beautiful thought, you know, and until you go to uh, the bank and you check how much money you have and you realize that you don't have much. 
And so the going to the bank is equivalent to doing an experiment. You can have beautiful ideas and they would be very appealing. You know, the spheres around us in Aristotle's view of the universe was beautiful and very sophisticated and showed that Aristotle was smart. It was just wrong. That's all. It was beautiful, but wrong. And how did we find out? By actually doing observations through Galileo's telescope. And the point is that, you know, nature is whatever it is. Uh, we can stay ignorant. I have no problem. If you want to be ignorant and happy, that's fine. You know, that's what animals do. They can be happy and completely ignorant. But humans are different than animals. I think humans want knowledge. And knowledge means that you need to find the truth about reality, about the world, and not just enjoy beautiful thoughts. So true. And you mentioned Aristotle. Would it be one of the reasons that uh, early science started with philosophy or the earlier scientists were philosophers? And we've reached a stage where we still are connected in some way? Or do you think that that connection needs to be cut and these two need to be looked at as two different fields? Oh, no. I think... Um you know, philosophy can be thought of more uh, the embryonic uh, phase of science because, you know, even Einstein, when he tried to come up with his theory of gravity, he went back to some philosophers like Mach and others that, you know, thought about the basic underlying principles that, uh, that guided Einstein. And I think when you're trying to create a better understanding of nature, uh, you, you, many times you go back to the the, the board and, and and think more abstractly about the possibilities, about you know what wh what's the best path to take, and and uh, at that point it doesn't it's not very different from doing philosophy. So so I would say you know in general I would say that the humanities are really important. Uh, there are many scientists and people that work in the tech business that completely dismiss the significance of the humanities. And humanities are in decline, you know, philosophy, arts, and so forth. Fewer young people are attracted to that because there are not many job opportunities. But think about all the technologies that we are developing uh, right now, like artificial intelligence or, um, or DNA uh, uh, studies. And, and in, in, in these areas, um, the ethics is extremely important. So, for example, artificial intelligence may be crucial in making decisions, life and death decisions about medical situations in the future. And uh, when you don't have a doctor, a human involved in the decision making, when it's a computer, there are lots of moral questions, ethical questions, how to do it in a way that you would be humane and would be guided by our ethical principles. And here, the humanities philosophy is important. Um, and uh, similarly, in, in the context of genetics, um, you know, there would be the ability, now that we understand the human genome, the ability to perhaps design some qualities that humans may have. And you have to decide about the boundaries of doing that. Uh, just like when we figured out the atomic uh, secrets and uh, developed atomic weapons uh, there were issues to do with how to use them and uh, so science and technology unleash new forces and we really need the humanities the philosophy to guide us 
coming to your book, I have to say that you have a very, very exciting cover. And I was looking uh, when I got it. And uh, strangely, I just wanted to ask you about that. It's it's a young boy looking up into space. And there's a beautiful globe uh, or a moon behind in the background. And is does that signify what you're trying to get across as as we grow older, we tend to stop thinking or taking risks and you know we are full of wonder while we are young that's right uh, but i should say don't judge a book by its cover <laughs> um the cover and the title were selected by my publisher uh, i focus on the content and uh, it's true that uh, there is something to the cover that reflects the way i think because um, i i pretty much want to stay genuine uh um, similar to the way I was in my childhood. Because I remember that very fondly as a kid. I was wondering about the world. I wasn't very occupied with my ego. And uh, I was willing to take risks and make mistakes. And um, I was asked, for example, by the Harvard Gazette, the Pravda of Harvard, the, the official newspaper of Harvard, uh, to answer one question. What is the one thing uh, that you would like to change about the world? And my answer was, I want my colleagues in academia to behave more like kids uh, in the sense of being guided by their wonder, less by their ego, not building these echo chambers that amplify their voice of students and, and, and postdocs and uh, not uh, trying to get honors and awards, taking risks, making mistakes. That's part of the learning experience, especially after you have tenure in academia. That That is a privilege that you can do whatever you think is right, uh, without worrying about your job. And unfortunately, many of my colleagues do not take advantage of that. So coming back to the cover, you know, a book, a, a boy looking at the sky is pretty much what I am. I am still a farm boy. I was born on a farm and used to collect eggs. Uh, every afternoon we had chickens and I used to uh, drive a tractor to the hills of the village. Uh, I was born in Israel. Uh, and um, I very much remain uh, the same person. If you ask people that know me, I haven't changed much, and I don't want to change. Even though I have all these titles of um, professor, tenured professor at Harvard, uh, chair of the astronomy department, and uh, director of this and that, uh, these are just titles. These are just like the cover of a book. It's, it, it, it doesn't mean much to me. It's, it's the content, the substance that matters, and I really enjoy uh, wondering about the world and trying to figure it out. And uh, that's why also I, I speak to anyone that wants to discuss science with me without any status uh, difference. And, um, um, and um, you know, science is not an occupation of the elite, the way some people try to portray it. Uh, it should be a way of life. Uh, when I have a problem... Uh, with a pipe at home, I, I, I approach it the same way that I approach a scientific problem. Any anything in 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 my life, I think about it as as I do about scientific questions. And I think science is is simple, and and the public should be able to connect to it. Uh, and unfortunately, the the scientists are very often distancing themselves from the public, trying to put themselves on a pedestal and say, you know, we don't want to work on on things that the public finds particularly exciting like the search for extraterrestrial life we want to feel removed and 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 elevated and it should be something that shows that we are really special and again it's the ego and i have a real problem with that because i think we should be guided by modesty 
especially as an astronomer, you know, I look at the universe, it's so big and we are so small and, you know, just one out of 10 to the power 20 uh, habitable planets in the observable volume of the universe, you know, it's just like one grain of sand on the landscape of a huge beach. How can anyone be arrogant? Uh, we live just for such a short time of the cosmic history. You know, it's we are so insignificant. And why? Why? How can anyone feel power in in being superior to another human being? I mean, that that makes no sense. You know, racism, for example, makes no sense whatsoever. Just judging a person by the color of his skin. You know, that skin deep. Not nothing significant about it. Um, and uh, we do a lot of things that make no sense to me. I mean, humanity doesn't doesn't show a lot of intelligence in the way that it deliberates itself. We we waste a lot of time and money and energy on fighting each other when we should work together towards a better future. That's another message in my book, and I give some examples about that. Um, for example, um, uh, Churchill, Winston Churchill, in 1939, he wrote uh, an essay about um, the search for life and uh, around other stars. Uh, that was 1939. He didn't have a chance to publish it because he was drafted to become prime minister of uh, the UK and uh, fought the Nazis, the Nazi regime, during the Second World War. And uh, imagine how many resources were wasted on killing people during the Second World War. If we were to use the same resources to... A study the question that Churchill posed in 1939, we might know by now whether we are alone. Uh, instead, people just wasted that uh, resource and, and killed a lot of other people, and nothing was accomplished. And uh, it just shows you that we are not very intelligent. We are doing things that do not make a lot of sense in the in the big scheme of things. And and uh, that's one reason that uh, I, I enjoy thinking about finding civil, uh, intelligence out there because I don't find a lot of it on Earth. <laughs> that it's so refreshing to hear you talk because, as you've also covered in your book, where you have spoken about. And I want to just connect it to Amua Uma again. Where in your book, what is the need for us to think that we would be visited deliberately by extraterrestrials? Do we give ourselves that? It could be just passing by or they may not have noticed us. That's right. I think we're not special enough to merit a visit. I think that we are probably quite common. You know, things like us existed and possibly exist right now in many other places. And it's sort of like ants on a sidewalk when you walk down the street, you don't pay attention to every ant. So why do we think that we deserve special attention? Moreover, you know, most of the stars in the Milky Way galaxy are dwarf stars, uh, like uh, Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to the sun, uh, has 12% of the mass of the sun. It's much fainter. It has half the surface temperature. It emits mostly infrared radiation. And most of the stars are like that. So most of the creatures in the Milky Way galaxy might have infrared eyes, not eyes like we have for visible light. So obviously, uh, you know, interstellar tourist agencies uh, would not recommend the Earth as a tourist destination because we have green grass that is illuminated by visible light and they enjoy, most of these creatures are used to dark red grass using their infrared eyes to enjoy it. 
And so they would never come here, <laughs> uh, just as an example. Another thing that may happen is uh, that once a civilization becomes very advanced, it builds a cocoon. Uh, it, it, it has its own habitat uh, that supplies the civilization with everything they need. And they feel happy there and they don't need to establish contact with anyone else. And I call that social distancing on a cosmic scale. So you can imagine other civilizations socially distancing from us, not even caring about us. Now, that doesn't mean that we will never find about them because, you know, they must produce some trash and throw it into space. And uh, just like investigative journalists that go through the trash cans of celebrities in Hollywood to find out about their private lives, we can find the, the trash and figure out what they are doing. True. And... We, we do understand that you have limited time. You have a, a, an, another interview coming up. So uh, once again, from everyone here, I would just like to quote the uh, title of the book, which is Extraterrestrial, The First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. I've got a copy. I have to tell you that it's absolutely stunning. So before we let you go, uh, once again, we've spent our time really well with you. I want to Personally, thank you for taking time out to speak to us here in India. And we just hope that you've had a good time as well. And would you want to give us a message to our listeners who are listening to you here? And what would that message be? Yes, um, my main message is stay true to your curiosity. Stay modest. Just behave as if you were a child and try to figure out the world honestly uh, and the rest will come along. You will make discoveries, you'll get uh, important jobs in academia, and just be true to yourself. Um, I should also say that many of my uh, best collaborators are from India. One of them is uh, f uh, finishing a book, a textbook with me on the search for life. His name is Manasvi Lingam, and this textbook will come out uh, in June uh, 2021, in about half a year. Uh, from Harvard University Press and uh, it's about a thousand pages long it's very very big textbook uh, and we hope that it will establish the foundation uh, for research on this subject uh, Manasvi was my postdoc for a number of years and now he has a faculty position I'm also collaborating with uh, 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 other uh, uh, other Indian uh, scientists like uh, Hamsa Padmanabhan and, and uh, um, Vikram Ravi and others and uh, I enjoyed it very much and I think uh, overall India has a, a huge potential in terms of its uh, talents and um, I wish you success in the future. So to all our listeners, this podcast was created on Hub Hopper Studio so if you wish to start your podcast for free visit www.hubhopperstudio.com Hubhopper is India's leading podcast creation platform and you can start your podcast with Hubhopper Studio and get your voice heard across platforms like Spotify, Ghana, Google Podcasts, Wink Music and much more. Do click on the link in the episode description or visit www.hubhopperstudio.com once again, thank you for listening and do stay tuned for many more very interesting episodes.